Welcome to the NICU Dad Podcast, a podcast for NICU dads by NICU dads. I'm Alex Zavala, a father to two preemie girls, Mia, who was born at 30 weeks, and Emerson, who was born at 27 weeks. Combined, my wife Jen and I both spent over 100 days in the NICU. After my last NICU experience, I started the NICU Dad. I did this to try and fill the gap of information and support that was lacking for NICU dads. Be sure and check out the NICUDad.com and hopefully you will find it a useful resource. In this podcast, we will cover many topics that NICU parents face, but from the NICU dad's perspective. Topics such as premature birth, bereavement, PTSD, and many others. These dads who you'll hear share their stories in hope of letting other NICU dads know they are not alone. Welcome to the Nikki Dad Podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Rad White. Rad is dad to preemie twins, Rupert and Maisie, who were born at 29 weeks, 6 days in Australia. After Rad's NICU experience, he recognized a gap in support for NICU dads. He wrote the book, Enter the NICU, which features past NICU dads. He did this in hopes to address this lack of support. He also started the NICU Beard Club to support dads during their NICU journey. He has an honors degree in psychology, and when not supporting NICU dads, he runs Rad White Marketing, a boutique sales and marketing business for lead generation. I'm here with Rad White of the uh, NICU Beard Club and also the writer of Enter the NICU, a special book that I think is just uh, completely essential to any NICU dad. We're here with the uh, talking to Rad today. We have some questions for him on his journey and uh, how he got here and, and what brought him to, to come and, and be a, an advocate for NICU dad. So uh, first of all, first question I have for you is, um, well, one, what was your NICU experience like for you and, and what did you have? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. Um, it's really good to be able to share the message and, and uh, hopefully uh, some of the things that I can share with you today and some of the questions you ask, we can help some other dads. Uh, I'll be wrapped. Uh, they might have to listen back to this uh, podcast a couple of times to understand my accent, but uh, if that uh, gets a message through, then uh, I'm more than happy. <laughs> um, but uh, I had... Um, I'm, a, I'm a late father, so uh, my kids were born uh, when I was uh, 45, um, and uh, my wife uh, was um, uh, she was high risk. Uh, she was high risk of preeclampsia, and she was also 42, so she had the age uh, risk as well. Uh, so we knew that going in, she had high blood, high blood pressure as well, uh, so we knew that going in um, and we were prepared, I guess, to a certain extent, but we didn't know what prepared really meant, I guess. So um, I remember it was around, well, it was 29 weeks uh, and one day that uh, Kirsten had had a checkup in the hospital and they had some concerns about uh, one of the children, because it turned out to be a group of my son, um, had uh, seemed to have some backflow in the cord, but they weren't 100%, but they uh, had my wife come in earlier in the next uh, few days to do uh, another check-in. Um, and then that next check-in, that's when I said, no, no, it's definitely, there's definitely evidence of backflow, um, and she wasn't uh, going home. She was actually staying in and having a baby. And so that was 29 in five days. Um, so I got the I got the call uh, and I was at my desk. I was working for an energy company at the time in a corporate partnership role. And I remember I had a, a cup of tea on my desk and uh, and I just dropped everything as soon as I got the call from her in tears, just saying, "You need to come into the hospital. Something's going wrong. I don't know what it is. They're trying to tell me, but I don't understand what it is." 
Um, if you just get in here as soon as you can, I just dropped everything, left my computer, left my cup of tea, um, and uh, just raced in. Um, I uh, jumped in the car, I was parked nearby, and just luckily the hospital was only probably four kilometres up the road, so I was able to get there pretty quickly. Uh, and then, yeah, she was just in tears. Um, and, uh, and I just spent some time with her, just sort of comforting her and, and not sort of trying to dive in, but she's clearly upset, just trying to help her through that first. And then, and then she started sort of um, having a bit of a conversation with me about some of the stuff the doctors were saying with his back flow and, and we had no idea what that meant. And um, we'd also, uh, in between that uh, 29 week and one day visit, um, we'd also had a um, conversation with our, um, our obstetrician uh, who, was, who was, hadn't been told that we'd been in and hadn't been told there was evidence of, of um, backflow. Um, so he was a little livid and he told us not to do anything until they consulted him first. So we're kind of in this little bit of a limbo where we didn't, didn't quite... Uh, didn't quite trust the hospital staff that were saying we need to go in and we're trying to contact our obstetrician who just unfortunately happened to be away on leave for that day. <laughs> so, so it was a bit of a tense time. As it turned out, my sister um, is a midwife, well-respected midwife in the circles in Melbourne. Um, and so she was able to use her, pull her strings and get his mobile number and called him and just explain what was going on. And anyway, he, he spoke to us and said, look, this sounds like you need to go through. And, and um, so it was just a few hours there. We didn't know what was going on. It was a bit confusing. That was a bit stressful in itself. Um, and uh, so we then uh, stayed overnight. And it was probably the worst night that we've ever had, I guess. We, we, um, uh, and it's five years ago now, so I'm going to struggle with some of the actual terms. But we had the, um, the two little uh, gadgets on to uh, monitor the twins' heart rates. Um, doppels, I think they're called, um, and uh, and one baby just kept moving, would not stay still. I know exactly who that one was. It's Amazing, she just doesn't stay still <laughs> even now. So we know it was her. And then my son Rupert, who, who had the IGR, he was jammed up in my wife's rib cage. Um, so he was, he was quite stable. He was on the come out. So um, so we spent the night there. I remember it was just so dreary. It was just so stressful and. Um, uh, we'll, my wife was in a bed and, and she'd sort of been um, injected with a few things to sort of stimulate babies, um, hormones and steroids and stuff. Uh, and I didn't really have anywhere to lie down or anywhere to, to relax. Not that you can relax. All I had was a chair. But, you know, by the time it got to sort of 3 a.m. in the morning, I was just, just trying to keep the doctors on the on the babies and keep moving. Um, it was just exhausting. It was about 3.30 or something like that. And, and, um, I was sitting on the chair and, up, and more I said, well, you have a little snooze if you want to see anything back tomorrow. So I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> I just, I just, I nodded off. And no joke, I reckon I was asleep for about 15, 20 minutes. And we heard a God Almighty scream in the next room. And it was a woman at the moment of giving birth to a child because we're in the birthing suites. <laughs> and my wife and I just sat bolt upright. Like, what the hell was that? And, um, and we just started laughing. And it was just, it was such a great icebreaker. It was so intense, but it was such a great icebreaker. Um, so I'm not, I'm not recommending that, uh, you know, people go and listen to someone else give birth and intent to try and break the tension, <laughs> but it certainly worked for us. Um, and uh, so anyway, I couldn't sleep again after that. But, um, so we ended up going in, sort of, uh, she didn't have anything to eat, obviously, because she was having surgery, so I didn't have anything to eat either. Went into surgery, got a bit all dressed up and everything, and uh, she ended up having a cesarean uh, at 11 o'clock the next morning, I think it was. So that's a full 24 hours in hospital, and, 
the art audience to torch and that sort of stuff, so she brush her teeth and that sort of important things. Um, brush her hair, um, ready for the operation. Um, and um, uh, so then we went in and I think for the first time I think I really felt on the outer guess was when uh, they, they took her into the operation but didn't bring me in. They took her in first. Obviously there's some things there that I'm going to see and I completely get that, but I kind of felt like, you know, you stay there, you come in later. Uh, and so then, anyway, we, we did that, and then uh, they wheeled me in, and, and I sat down with Mr. Kirsten, and um, it was just a, that experience of being in a cesarean. I mean, I've played a lot of football, and I've seen guys with broken legs, being knocked out, broken jaws, broken arms, fingers, um, running to players. It's just, I've seen some pretty full-on stuff, and, um, uh, and just nothing prepared me for some of the sounds that I heard coming from the other side of that sheet. Um, uh, it was just full on. It was really full on. The biggest sound I remember was just a massive. I felt like someone threw a bucket of water on the floor. That was pretty much Kirsten's waters breaking. I just went, what the hell was that? Um, and I remember, I remember just, I don't know, someone was watching me from behind and I remember just kind of trying to gaze in, going, what's that sound over there? And someone's hand on my shoulder with a little bit of pressure pushed me back down towards my last leg. And you focus on here, big fella. Don't look anywhere else. Uh, and, um, and and so that was really helpful. Um, and anyway, um, the kids uh, had to. Maisie came out okay. Um, we had a name in the next stage. We know if they're boys or girls, so we can bleach off this when we had. Um, but when I do, when I talk to other people about this, I, I tell them that. Um, uh, and, and out of context, this sounds really bad. But in context, I didn't know what the kids' faces looked like because when the doctors picked the babies up, they just showed them the genitals. They just like picked it up and said, "Here you go, you got a girl." Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then Sam with my son, here you go, you got a boy. And I, I didn't know what their faces looked like, but I knew what their genitals looked like. It was just bizarre, <laughs> not what I expected to happen. Um, and so when I actually went and saw their faces in the little room next door where they were looking after them, making sure they were okay, and um, that's when I first got to see their faces. And, and funnily enough, whilst Rupert was the one that needed to come out, Maisie was the one that had, I think it's an APGAR score, I think her score just deteriorated quite rapidly after she was born. So they spent a bit of time, more time on her, uh, that on Rupert, and, um, and I just remember uh, leaving my last side, which is really difficult um, to, to leave her side, just to go, even just to go in the next room and see the kids. And, uh, and Maisie's eyes were, were closed. Um, she was still, she'd been awake, but then she'd sort of gone back to sleep, I think, I guess, I don't know really, but she was quiet, I was just talking to her. And then I went over and saw my son, and his eyes were open, and, um, and I just looked in his eyes, and it was just, it was just sensational. It was just the, the first time I, I bonded with him, and... Um, I just told him what a champion he was and uh, how proud I was of him uh, to even be there and uh, what, a, what a great young young boy he was. Um, and um, uh, it was just magical. It was just so good. It was so good. And I was, I was, at that stage, I didn't really know what kind of danger they were in, I guess, or what kind of issues they were in or were going to face at that point. I was just so excited they were born and, and, and they had a little journey but didn't know really what to expect. And um, so shortly after that... Um, the surrealness continued and I had to leave my wife and um, had to head upstairs. Um, and in Melbourne, you've got to go out of the, out down a hallway and then into a lift and then um, across another hallway down to the intensive care unit. Um, and it just feels surreal that you've got your new children that you can't touch yet in an incubator, but, you know, looking like an iron lung from the 1920s or something, um, and uh, just travelling through. And I had some really, really good... Um, um, people in the lift with me um, uh, and probably 
what really helps if there's any YouTube professionals listening, but uh, what really helped was people um, just talking about what was actually happening. And just saying, it's a bit strange, isn't it, being in a lift with your twins that have just been born in a big box? Yeah, it is strange. <laughs> and they're really Captain Obvious statements, but they um, were incredibly grounding and helped me just get through those next couple of stages. Um, so we wheeled them in uh, into intensive key and it's straight down there. And um, I remember seeing other families watching me come in and, and uh, I remember I smiled and they smiled and, and they're still good friends. The first people I saw, uh, the first people I had eyes on, um, they smiled and they smiled, and that, which was fantastic. Um, and then, so I had the two kids in separate beds next to each other, um, but on either side of the, the ward. Um, and, uh, and I just remember, uh, again, having this uh, massively primal urge just to push all the staff aside and protect my kids because I just wanted to get in there and look after them because um, they were crying, both of them were crying at this stage and, and um, it, just, it just connected on a level I just didn't even know existed. Uh, so I had to resist that urge. So I, I, was, I didn't know what to do, so I just took photos. Um, I took a lot of photos. Um, and I had, a, had another um, NICU doctor come up to me and uh, stand next to me, not in front of me, and not pointing it out, but showed me what was going on with each child. And I cannot remember what she said to me to, to ask me, but I know that it was incredibly grounding again for me just to have someone to stand beside me and say, okay, well, here's what happens. And, you know, the plastic's over the top of them to keep them warm. They've got the beans on to keep their heads warm. They're going to get oxygen. They're going to get, um, you know, they're going to um, get warm lights on them. Just took me to all the basics, just the pragmatic side of it. Um, and, uh, and that was pretty much the start of it. That's pretty much how, um, how we got in there. I mean, the kids are in there for um, 10 weeks and 10 weeks and 14 weeks, maybe 10 weeks and 14 weeks. And, um, um, so, yeah, so I, you know, I just I had to go back up to, up to my wife and just tell her what was going on. That was quite tricky. Lucky I had a thousand and one photographs to sort of show her. Um, and, uh, and she just asked me the most basic of questions. How are the kids? I went, oh, I think they're okay. I, I don't know. And I, it was the, it was, I guess it was the first time I couldn't actually answer someone's question about how my kids were. Uh, and that's a really strange experience because you kind of expect it. If someone asks you, hey, kids were, you say, yeah, they're good, they're good. But I just didn't know. Just did not know. That was the first experience I had of it. Um, and uh, the frustration of not being able to give my wife a straight answer because I just didn't have a straight answer to kids. Um, so that's, that's pretty much how I got into the NICU, um, how I joined the club, so to speak, before there was a, a, a club. <laughs> it's always been an unspoken club, I guess, but, uh, um, but yeah, so that's how I got in. And, um, uh, and it was just a, I guess having twins. Uh, we were lucky because I think probably out of the 10 weeks that they were in the NICU together, uh, they were in the same ward for probably six or seven of those weeks. Um, and probably I think three or four of those weeks they were in separate uh, rooms within the ward, sorry, separate rooms within the NICU. Um, so we had to sort of split our time. We couldn't actually um, get anywhere. In. Uh, sometimes we just couldn't get the same room, which is frustrating. Uh, but, yeah, that's just the way it goes. We can think that's about it and moved on. Um, I guess I did, uh, I mean, in terms, of my, in terms of how I handled the time there, I mean, I've read a lot. Um, they say not to buy expensive things, maybe expensive decisions, financial decisions when you're under a uh, period of stress. Um, but I completely ignored that and I bought myself a $7,000 subscription to a, um, an economic news service, <laughs> which, wow. which, which was all about, 
which was all about stock markets and um, uh, you know, the economy, what's happening in the world. Um, but it was really geared around picking stock. So um, I do stock stock tipping sessions um, afterwards if anyone's interested. Um, but uh, I think what I found was the the dryness the dryness of all of that um, just helped centre me and helped balance me against the highly emotiveness of not knowing what was going on with the kids. And I look back now in hindsight and see what a um, the purpose of that work, what it was doing for me. Um, and it was just giving that dry economic insight, um, which I read to the kids. That's what I read, everything, all I read, every time I went in now, I read I think probably fair to say for about 70% of my time, 67% of my time, I was reading something to the kids. And they were my um, economic or stock breaking newsletters talking about companies <laughs> that are on the verge of a breakthrough and um, <laughs> what was happening in, in, in the United States economy, what's happening in the Australian economy. And, um, so if I go up to be economists and stock brokers, I'll know exactly why. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, it just, it just felt like it was just calming for me. Um, and so that was, uh, and I also tried to, uh, well, I tried to, I did, I put my hand up as many times as I could to do cares, to do feeds, um, uh, even any syringes of any medicines or anything like that. I, I put my hand up every single time because I thought uh, my perspective was that the kids are born, they're now here, um, I am their dad, and I'll do everything I can for them. So that at the end of the day, I can look back and go, there's nothing else I could have done, everything I could do. Um, and that was, but that was also for um, one. I wanted to let them know their parents were there, and my wife was exactly the same um, that they were there. But then also too, if they, um, if if I'm, if I'm unfortunately didn't make it, that I wanted to feel like they've done everything I could. Um, I didn't want to have any gaps. I didn't want to feel like they missed anything or could have done more or anything like that. And I wanted to make because it was touch and go there a couple of times. Both of them had. Um, I don't know whether you have the blue lights in the NICUs in the States, but in Australia you have a blue light, which is pretty much brings the highly specialised um, medical people to your room quick smart. Because basically it means the child mm. uh, is, is moments away from passing away. So we had wow. that, I think, I think we had it twice with Maisie and once with Rip. I'm oh, sorry, twice with Rip and once with Mamie. Um, so, um, so it was very close, very close. Um, and luckily we, we got through that. Um, so yeah, but Ruby also had a, a version of NAC. Um, there were 16 kids in the ward that got it. They didn't know how to put in. Um, he was the only one that didn't have to have surgery on his bowel to sort of move it um, and fought through it, um, which was just incredible. Um, so we were very, very lucky there. Um, but yeah, I think uh, between my wife, we we were lucky. I like to go work four kilometres away from the hospital at that point. And, and, um, uh, she was on leave, so we'd go into the hospital together. We'd get in there between 7 and 8 in the morning, and um, she'd be there from um, 7 or 8 when I dropped up. I'd go in, um, spend half an hour to an hour with the kids, um, and then go to work. Jimmy got about 9, I'd be at work by about 9.30, and then she'd be there till about 3, 3.30, then she'd go home, and then I'd get in there pretty much about 5, 5.30, and I'd be with the kids till um, 11 at night or something like that, um, on average. So that way the kids always, the kids have 24 hours, they had sort of 17 hours, 18 hours of us um, being there, one or the other being there. Um, and we, like I said, we're just very lucky to do that. Um, uh, I mean, there were some parents there, there were some kids that, um, that we saw, that we were there all the time. We just saw some kids that didn't have their parents coming at all. So for whatever reason, I would have felt for those kids. And um, it's kind of, it's kind of um, going 
galvanised me to want to be one of those professional YouTube paddlers when I retire. I'll just go, go in there and, and hold other people's kids that, that can't yeah. get in there. So let the kids get some sort of human contact. And um, I'm still thinking about those kids even now um, that, uh, that didn't get that from their parents and, and uh, yeah, ultimately wish them well. But, um, but yeah, so um, but that's pretty much how it is. And I think probably the other funny story just on that is just that when the kids were scheduled to be born on the Australian Football League Grand Final Day, which is pretty much the equivalent of your Super Bowl, except um, right, right. Out Australian football, we don't wear pads, so it's a, it's a bit tougher. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> I agree, I agree. <laughs> and, um, and I used to play state, I used to be a state level footballer, so, um, so I used to know a lot of guys who were playing in the, in the, in the pro ranks, basically. And, mm-hmm. um, and so anyway, she was, my, my daughter was due, and the kids were due on the grand final day, so... Uh, as it turned out, Maisie got released from the Nicky on Grand Final Day. And um, I've never driven slower in my life. I've never driven slower with my baby in, in the back of my life. And I was just so lucky it was Grand Final Day because there's no one on the roads. Everyone did a barbecue, everyone did a picnic, everyone was <laughs> doing something. And we left at about 2.30, which is when the game started, 2.30 in the afternoon. Um, and, uh, and I just got hyper, hyper vigilant. And I remember looking down the road, 100 metres down the road, what's that car doing? Is he turning or what's he doing? <laughs> I just got so hyper vigilant about being so aware of what my, who was around us and looking after my kids. So um, uh, it was very funny. Very funny. But that's, pretty, that's a pretty high-level summary of, um, sort of what, what happened at the experience. Yeah, well, I think I think, uh, I, I think uh, what you're describing right now is pretty much almost every NICU dad uh, on that day when you do go home. Uh, that was literally, um, if my car could have had bubble wrap around it or some kind of force field, um, I would have gotten it. Uh, I think we all, that could be the one time that all us dads are driving as slow as possible and as careful as possible. <laughs> I, I remember going home that same way and you didn't want to have a car next to you or anything. It was just talk about precious cargo. But I, I do want to ask you um, on there, uh, it's something I like to call um, the NICU dad shuffle. And yeah. you know what I want to, if you can describe what it was like for you where your wife is recovering from surgery, um, you have the two babies in the NICU, um, you still either have to run your business or, you know, your work, um, things at home still need to be taken care of. And I, I really like that you describe stuff, you know, about how primal this is, but I just want to, if you can describe what that was like for you and then, I know with twins, sometimes one goes home, you know, before the other. And so shuffling even that, um, what was that like for you? Yeah, um, uh, I guess Kirsten uh, was out of the hospital after three days. So uh, that wasn't too bad. And she was able to move around after her first day. She had a wheelchair, so she had to move around and... Um, she's she was very independent, still is, and and um, so she she was pretty determined to keep moving uh, and be with the kids. So when I would go in, when she was in there those three or four days, yeah, she would generally be down next to the kids. Um, she wasn't at her bed, um, so that side of it wasn't too bad. It was, um, uh, I guess, um, the shuffle. 
between the kids. Like I said before, when we were in between in different rooms, the kids were in different rooms, that was a bit challenging because you wanted to spend, be in the vicinity of each child so they could at least feel you around. Um, you know, quite often when we had um, isolates next to each other, that my wife would sit next to one, I'd sit next to the other, and then, you know, we could um, kangaroo care one child but then hold the child's hand, another child's hand with the other free hand. So that way, it would probably be overstimulating, I guess, but um, uh, it just gave us an opportunity to be next to the kids and we'd swap. And um, So that was just really, I found that difficult, but it was just, um, I, I don't know, I just got into operational mode. I just had, I just dealt within the parameters I was given. Um, I didn't like it, but I just got on with it. Um, the two, the, probably the, the biggest impact, though, Alex, was when Maisie came home and Rupert had to stay. He wasn't ready to come home yet. Um, mm-hmm. And what we found was... Um, we were trying to give Maisie a routine home. Well, that's not true. We thought we'd, because they'd been so routinized at the hospital, we thought we'd give Maisie a bit of a free pass and go freestyle. Um, you know, you, we'll feed you when you feel like being fed and, you know, and then it just didn't work. It just didn't work. Because she was in such a routine that um, when she fell out of it, it just, it just didn't work. And so we thought, well, we can solve it if you do. I said, no, routine's best for twins because otherwise you're going to be an up all night feeding each one is on different schedules, and mm-hmm. so that, that was really challenging. But um, yeah, so we're trying to get in there to see Rupert and get Maisie a a, um, a routine, and it was just we ended up seeing Rupert less significantly than what we were seeing before. Um, and he was in there for four weeks, and he, he still actually wasn't ready um, when we spoke to the hospital. He was still being um, fed through a nasal gastric tube. Um, so the hospital, so we did something quite unique. And we had to sign waivers and all sorts of stuff. But the hospital said they would train us. We were already doing it, but they said they'd train us in nasal gastric feeding. And we'd have to sign off that we'd been trained and all that sort of stuff. And so we said, yeah, no worries, we'll do it. Um, and interestingly enough, that, that experience has now given them the opportunity to do that with other parents, um, to allow other parents to, to take them home. And then, um, in terms of the tube, you know, obviously you have, your child doesn't call the tube out, but if they do, then in Australia we have a maternal and child health nurse that's employed by our local council um, and their role is to go around and visit each mother with their babies make sure everything's okay so if the tube came out we could just ring that nurse and she was normally visiting every week anyway um, she would come out and do it or we'd take her into the NICU to, to get Ruby to get the tube back in but he was generally pretty good he didn't you know I think it was probably that sort of uh, eight weeks afterwards he was on the nasal gastric tube before it did um, take to the breast um, that uh, he, he was on there. So it was only going about four or five times we had to do it. Um, so we brought him home because it was just, we just didn't feel it was fair to him and he wasn't getting us and he, he really needed it. So um, yeah. we did something about it and, and, and uh, made an extraordinary request, which was granted. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, and I think it just goes to show, too, how important it is, the presence of the parents um, for... Uh, the success of, of the NICU baby. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that you can't, you know, you, you can't fake. It, it, you know, it's, it's something magical. Um, but I do want to get in to, just to give a little backstory here, um, when I was doing research about NICU dads, uh, I jumped online to try to do some research and couldn't find anything. Uh, maybe a mention here and there, uh, from a blog uh, or a post on some website uh, where a NICU dad would share a story. Um, but you, I found you, and you were the only thing that, that really was out there. Um, 
I found the NICU Beard Club, and uh, then I found Enter the NICU, and that was a, a huge find for me, and that's, you know, why we're here. Uh, but what I really want to know, um, one, is what gave you the idea of writing Enter the NICU, and, uh, and kind of what was that process like for you? Um, yeah, I look, mate. I'm I'm just so excited that um, that labour of love that I created is has uh, has helped you and and um, uh, has given you ideas and and um, some some thoughts and inspiration. I mean, to me, I, mean, I love hearing that. That's you know, when I was slaving away in the home office that I'm now sitting in at the moment of all hours, um, <laughs> getting that written and, and interviewing people and everything like that. I mean, I, I just um, I, I just hoped it would reach someone, and I just hope. That someone would read us, <laughs> um, and uh, and you're that one person that's done it. So I'm happy. I'm super happy now. And, and, uh, and, and now I want to try and reach more people and, and just and share what's in it because it is. I, I wrote it. It's by dads for dads, and that's where I that's where I came from. Was that um, like you? When, uh, five and a half years ago, when my, my kids were born, um, I just looked around. And go, well, what is there for dads? Um, we, and I'm sure they have them in the States. In Australia, we have um, um, antenatal classes or prenatal classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we even went to a special twins one, um, which was held at the same hospital the kids were born. Uh, and they just told us how, just gave us you know, how to look after your child. And, you know, we did the, played with the toy dolls and made sure we didn't drop them and all that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but even in that specialised pregnancy group, about how to look after your child, no one spoke about going into intensive care. No one spoke about some of the challenges you'll have, either physically or socially or mentally. Uh, they just weren't addressed. And, and I just thought that was such a... It's not a, it's not a criticism, it's just a massive oversight. And, and I, I've since discovered that the, the no one can really answer me why, which is really funny. No one can actually answer me why. I think it's more a case of it's the way it's always been done. Um, and sometimes things in, uh, in a science-based profession like, like, uh, like medicine and nursing, etc. sometimes it's really hard to change things because of how things have always been done because it's based on science. Um, but what we're talking about and what I thought was missing was the social element and the psychological element, um, the motivational element. How do, you, how do you get through? How do you keep going when you have to go to NICU for weeks on end? Um, how do you connect with people? How do you have conversations? No one warned us that... Um, when you have a child in the NICU, um, parents that haven't been through the NICU just don't understand, and, and that kind of goes over their head. It's just, no matter how, no matter how well intended or how well intentioned that, that they are, they just they just can't understand the distress because they didn't really get very close to losing their own child. I mean, I want anyone to get close to doing it, but but you know, people in the NICU have gone through that, so it's, you have a different perspective of it. Um, uh, so there was that, and, and that was a big motivating factor because the hospital we went to is pretty much the best hospital in Australia when it comes to women's health. Um, and if they're not even doing it, I mean, I hate to think what's going on in the other hospitals. So that kind of put a bit of a bug into me and a bit of fire, and, uh, and then you know, we ended up going through the process, and, and I was in the hospital there. There's a the guy uh, who heads up the uh, intensive care unit there. His name is uh, Carl Kuschel. He's an associate professor. Um, lovely guy, he and a team of consultants um, came up with the idea. He had, a, he had a fellow come up to him, or oh, we bumped into a guy, a former dad, 
um, of the NICU um, and uh, Carla, and I'd interviewed this guy in the book, um, and, and said to, uh, to Carl, Carl said, oh, how are you going? How's everything going? He goes, oh, yeah, really good. You know, our baby's good and everything's well. And he goes, but, oh, man, I just, I, I just collapsed in a heap about two weeks after she got home. And he said, what do you mean? Uh, and, and, and he said, well, he goes, it was just overwhelmed. Like, just the whole experience of it um, was just too full on, and, and uh, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Just couldn't get any further, and, and just uh, yeah, just couldn't face anything. Um, so he, he pretty much had a you know everything had pretty much stopped for him. Um, and that's when Carl got the idea. And that that fella, that fella by the name is um, is in the book um, Nick Mackay, um, lovely guy, really amazing guy. Um, uh, and so I just thought it was so important to have him in the book and, and, and talk about his tips and, and his experience of it. Um, so that's what got, got Carl thinking and the other consultants. He started thinking, well, all right, well, we're looking after the baby and from a medical perspective, we're ticking all the boxes because the babies are leaving and hitting all the right milestones when they're leaving. Uh, but what about the parents? What are we doing for the parents? And, and um, they saw there's a lot of support for mums uh, which is great, which is perfect, and I'm super happy for that, and they mums need it. Um, but there was just, they realised, there was just, they realised there was nothing around for dads. And so what they created was a dads group. Um, and I was one of the early participants in a dads group. Now, originally, a little funny story here, originally it was called Father's Group. And I saw these posters around the NICU which saying Father's Group Wednesday, every third Wednesday, you know, room, whatever it was. And I remember looking at the poster and going, oh, I was like, why would my dad want to come to one of these? Like, I just didn't... <laughs> yeah. I just didn't connect that I was a father at that point. I mean, I knew I was a dad. I didn't yeah. connect with father. To, to me, father is an older term and it refers to my generation's parents. Um, yeah. And so um, and so I think I'm a generation Xer, and so I think the... the I think dad is a more relevant term for me. And and, um, and I think uh, being a marketing guy, I think the first thing I said was in the room, I said, you really should rename this. It shouldn't be called father's group. It should be called dad's group. Cause, uh, and all the other guys, all the other dads, like three or five dads, yeah, it should be dad's group. And that was it. I'm just glad it was just changed, <laughs> which was hilarious. But when, but uh, and, and Carl, Carl and his team of um, consultants, and one of them I've got in the book too, um, uh, um, uh, Rocco, he's a lovely guy. Uh, they they do a walk around the ward on the Wednesday night. They now do it weekly. It used to be three weekly, but now the demand is so strong for it. They do it weekly. They went from every every third week to every second week. Now it's every week, every Wednesday. Um, and they have past Nikki dads now that come in and, and will dial in or, or attend the group and support the dads. Um, and uh, they still. They still, have, they still do a walk around. So they walk around the ward recruiting dads who are on the ward to get them to come down just for half an hour. Um, and I remember when they first approached me um, and they said, oh, look, um, we've got a dad's, we've got a father's group on tonight. Um, would you like to come down and just have a chat to other dads about what's going on? And um, I went, oh, I don't know, I'm okay, I'm okay. And uh, like most guys, I think, just say, no, I'm, I'm right, I'm okay, you know, I'm yeah. fine, you know. How, how dare you ask me sort of thing. <laughs> um, and uh, um, what are you implying? Um, but, um, uh, and they kind, of, they kind of got me into it because they said, uh, well, it's just to sort of ask about, there's going to be consultants there so you can ask any questions. They're going to talk about some of the things that are happening to your child and, um, 
uh, and, and we'll, how they're progressing, and you can share that with some of the other dads that what they're doing. You might you probably learn something, and I know, oh, okay, okay. And I remember, I remember saying, okay, all right, all right. Because uh, the payoff is you're leaving the time with your child to go and spend time with other men that you don't know. Uh, but you're not yeah. knowing what the payoff is from that group at this stage. So I remember walking down the corridor with them and I go, if this is some sort of new age make dads cry group, <laughs> I'm out of here in five minutes. <laughs> I'm not going to go down this path. If I'm going to bore my eyes, I'm going to do it on my own terms. I'm in a group of people I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it turned out it was nothing like that at all. It was actually it was sensational, um, and it was so good to talk to other dads. And um, and uh, one of the vivid memories I've got is um, uh, it was it's, uh, I think it was my third or fourth one, and um, there was we're talking about kangaroo care um, and, and kangaroo cuddling with your child skin to skin, and um, there was a dad in there who had a child in there for for two weeks and hadn't had a kangaroo cuddle yet, um, and all the dads just said, oh, why not? And uh, he goes, oh, I'm just, I don't know, I was offered to me, but I was just a bit, I don't know, just, and then, and virtually every day just went, mate, what are you doing? You've got to get down there. You've got to just, it's amazing. It'll change your life. It just, you suddenly connect in a brand new way and you will just know your child in a completely different way and you'll feel different about yourself and about your relationship with them as a parent. It's it's just brilliant. You've got to get down there. And we're all saying this to me. And just went, I'm going. I'm going to go down there now. Like, he just left the room and just went straight down and saw his kid and, like, spoke to the Nikki nurse and hooked himself up for a kangaroo cuddle. It was just it was just amazing. It was legendary. It was absolutely legendary. Um, it was just beautiful to see. Um, and so we all kind of high-fived ourselves after that. We are so proud of ourselves that we, you know, encouraged another dad to do it. And, and just those little sneak peeks, you know, this is all sort of the, the, as to what led me to write this book. Uh, they all just sort of turned in my guts for about two years. And I was having twins, you're pretty busy. And um, uh, so I didn't really have a chance for any spare moments while I was working as well. And um, But I just knew I wanted to do something. And, and I just, just the power of other dads uh, talking and suggesting was what really got me going. And um, and I'm also, as I said before, I sort of played a reasonable level of um, Australian rules football and um, club environment is very, very strong here. So you go and play in your local football club or you get recruited to a club, um, even in the junior or in the suburban competitions. Uh, and it's a real lifestyle. You spend sort of three or four nights there, you play a game, you, you'll quite often have social events there. Uh, it's, real, it's a real community. Um, and that's kind of, that's always was mulling around in my head. And I, so I just, you know, I actually just want to create a community of, of dads. Um, and like a club environment, um, clubs have had hundreds, if not thousands, of players that have gone um, before the current crop of players that are playing. Um, and there's honour boards and there's roles, there's premiership flags and, and uh, pennants and medallions and all sorts of stuff and trophies. And I just thought, well, why can't we have a club where people who've been through this experience, you know, who are the legends of the club, who are the senior statesmen of the club, why can't they just share their knowledge with the rookies of the club? Because there's thousands of men. I mean, in, in Australia, I think it's 30,000. I think in America, it's like 270,000 men that are going through this experience every year. And that's just phenomenal. Um, and I just thought, why can't, why can't we draw some of that experience and, and give that to the rookies who are coming in um, and just give them, what, give them in a way that they can use it? Um, so that's kind of where the, you know, there's two components to the book. Um, the one is how to survive your first 72 hours of NICU um, and what to expect from an unexpected delivery. 
and the second part is the transcripts of the book, um, which, uh, uh, as a dad, I didn't want any sugarcoating on anything I read. I didn't want anything fluffy. I didn't want anyone to be sympathetic to me. I just wanted to hear it as it was. I didn't want to hear anyone to filter it. I just wanted to hear from other dads. I wanted to hear their words. I wanted to hear them say it. Uh, and I wanted to read exactly what they said, which is why I made the decision just to use the transcripts and not go down the path of, of editing um, and creating themes through the book. There are certainly recurrent themes, and that's more the role of the 72-hour guide, um, the survival guide. Um, that's the one that deals with themes. Um, so I just knew there was two different... Oh, the other thing, sorry, the other thing that I had is I have my background... Uh, at university, I've got an honours degree in psychology, so I'm fascinated by people as it is. Um, and I've got a book, and I can't locate it at the moment, looking around my office, I can't think of where it is. It's called How to Survive the Loss of a Love. Um, and it's a book by Colgrove, uh, Bloomfield, and Williams. Um, it is a sensational book, um, and it works for um, you know, loss of a partner, loss of a job, um, loss of a career, loss of anything, loss of a child, anything, this book can handle it. It's relationship-oriented, but the principles are still the same. Um, and that's where I got the idea. I just wanted something you could just use. Um, there's something to be read, which is the transcripts, but then there's something you could use, which is the guide. So the guide you can just pick up. It's a few pages, and you can just read it, and you can get everything you need to know in about you know, um, you know, 79 seconds, I think is how quickly I could read it. Um, so in less than two minutes' time, you could read everything that these, you know, um, nine or ten dads had put together um, to guide future NICU dads. So the concept is um, past NICU dads supporting new and future NICU dads. And that's how it all came about. Yeah, no, I, lo I love that. And I love the format. Um, you know, I can't say enough. I think that uh, Enter the NICU should be in every single NICU, and, and every NICU dad needs to take a look at it. Um, and one of the biggest pieces uh, is what you brought up. That guide, for me, was just so eye-opening. Um, you know, just I wish I would have had something like that during my NICU experience. Um, the stuff in there is exactly – and. You know, we all have different experiences. We all have different, you know, lengths of NICU stays. Um, but at the same time, there's so many things that resonate that are just so similar for each one of us that we go through um, and, and we experience, you know. And we all experience things in our, in our own ways, but it's incredible how many things are on that guide um, that almost every NICU dad can use uh, in one way, shape, or form. But, um, you know, so – what did you really learn by talking to all these other NICU dads? I know you got the stories and, and, and all that, but was there anything that you really took away that that maybe you got that you didn't expect to get after talking to all these NICU dads? Yeah, well, mate, you've, you've segued beautifully there because um, I didn't know what to expect, I guess, uh, when I started doing these interviews. And, in fact, I was uh, I was completely frightened of doing it because I didn't know what I was going to uncover. Um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to deal with it. Um, and I didn't know whether the dads on the other end of the phone when I was interviewing them were going to be able to deal with it either, whatever we brought up. Because um, it's a unique experience for every single dad. Um, so I was kind of petrified 
um, and I remember I made the first call. I just went, I remember just saying to him, I won't swear, I won't say what I thought in my head, but I just went, don't stuff it up, don't stuff it up. <laughs> I used my stronger language with myself, but uh, I think I probably worked out what it was. Um, yeah. uh, so, so I think the thing that I really learned was, um, uh, and it's very similar when you're Nikki, don't assume that you know what's going on for another Nikki dad. Don't assume you know what's going on for them because um, you don't know their story. But at the same time, as you mentioned in beautiful segue, is that there is commonalities amongst us all. And that's, and I think in the way that I went about the book in choosing to focus on the experience of the dad and not the medical conditions that were folks faced by the, by the parents. We spoke generally about medical conditions, about medical staff and, and how to, how to relate to staff, but I just wanted to go at a very humanist level um, and just find out what worked for them. How did you manage? And those themes, those themes evolved naturally through the conversation. The only one question that I had that I scripted, which was the very, very first one, which was, how did you get to the NICU? It was the only scripted question I had. And then I let the guys pretty much talk and, um, you know, each each conversation I had, uh, on average, I went for about an hour. Some guys spoke for 45 minutes. Some guys spoke for an hour and 15. Um, and uh, uh, it was incredibly cathartic for each of those dads because it's um, it was the first time they had a chance to speak at length with someone and someone who was generally interested who understood what they were talking about. Um, uh, because in, in a NICU, obviously, you've got time to sort of run around and to be, you only got sort of five, ten minutes of each day. You don't get a chance to sort of unload. Um, and then with, with my understanding of NICU having been a, you know, 100-day um, stayer, um, you know, I had a good idea of how it was as a beginner, as a middle, and as a long-termer. So I was able mm-hmm. to cover and have relate to quite a few different people. Um, at the same time, I think from my perspective, what I learned about myself, I had to be ready to have that conversation. I couldn't just... I couldn't do three or four of those in a day. It would just be too much for me. Um, so I had, to, I had to respect where I was at and, and when I had the capacity to be able to handle the calls as well because every time I had a call with them, I went back into my own experience and how that worked mm-hmm. for me and what did and didn't work. And I, was, and I shared with them as much as they shared with me uh, about what worked um, and what didn't. Um, so, yes, I think, the, I think what was amazing was that there were common experiences and it really just came down to... Um, managing your partner or your relationship with your partner, the children, the medical staff, your work, how you handle family. Um, they're pretty much the key things that, that came out. Um, and they were consistent. Everyone had their own ideas. There's some brilliant ideas some of the guys had, which I'm like you. When I heard them, I thought, oh, why didn't I know about that? When I was in there, I would have done a Facebook page <laughs> for the kids as well and just told everyone to go to the Facebook page. It's just brilliant. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... So it was good. I, I think the thing is, I just whilst I had my own NICU experience, um, when you're in NICU, you have your own sort of tunnel vision about your own experience. And it wasn't until I got out and spoke to other dads and realised we had similar but different experiences, and they managed it, and how they managed their experience was different. Um, and it gave me a lot of our heart moments, and it actually helped me in reading their stories and listening to them talk. And it just gave gave me a way to cope and deal with my experience and made me feel like I wasn't the only guy that had gone through. Um, and through no fault of your own when you're going through anything, you kind of isolate yourself in a way because it, you, you become protection, you become the protectionist of your, of your family, your cocoon, you start being the cocoon and you want it to be that way and that's that primal side of it that comes in. But when we come out of that, you've got to let go of the primal side. That's really hard to do. 
Um, and so that's in, in, in having this experience with these amazing dads um, and them sharing their story. And I, was, I mean, I spoke to a lot of dads. Not all of them were willing to sort of go, you know, on the record, so to speak, and share their story. And these guys did. Um, you know, 100% grateful for them for sharing it and the, the, their stories being reached all over the world, which is just unbelievable. Um, uh, and, and they did it because they wanted to help other dads coming in after them. So I just, uh, just learned so much from them and about myself as well. Yeah, that's incredible. That's, that's amazing. Well, let me ask you, you know, with doing all this, um, what would be the biggest piece of advice that you would give another NICU dad? Um, the biggest piece of advice uh, I would say would just be to acknowledge your situation, um, acknowledge where you're at, acknowledge that you're in intensive care, um, acknowledge that your partner's probably going to have a cesarean, acknowledge that you might be there for... You might be there, depending on how early your child is, but you can reasonably expect you're going to be there until your um, uh, your expectation date. Um, and just accept it. Um, don't fight it. I mean, I did see dads that struggled with it, that couldn't cope, and there were dads that were like, my child, you know, my child shouldn't be in NICU because for whatever reason, they just couldn't accept it. Um, the dads that accepted it and got on with it as quickly as possible um, had the best had a better time and were less impacted by the um, the scenarios and the difficult situations because they very quickly just got on with it and started dealing with facts and just became very operational. Um, I guess the other side is I have this, I have, I'm generally a very positive person, so I I experienced a lot of the world with hope, um, but that was severely severely tested in the NICU because. Sometimes it was dangerous to hope um, because we're all hoping for a linear outcome with our child, but um, it's not linear. It's two steps forward, three back, one step forward, two back, three steps forward, four back. Yeah, it, just, it just doesn't go smooth and linear, um, and you kind of want that linear. And so I guess, I guess the thing is just to check your expectations at the door because um, your expectations um, aren't what's going to help the child, you need to respond and make the child the centre um, and, and uh, work from there. Um, no. I mean, the, the guide's got 32 different tips from all the other dads as well in terms of what's their best advice. Um, but uh, but that's, that's mine, is just manage yourself, manage your own mindset. Um, that is no, the most powerful aspect. Yeah, that, that's so well said. I mean, checking the expectations at the door, that's... that's um, <laughs> that I don't know of a truer statement. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, it is back and forth, um, and it definitely does not go the way we planned it. You sh you shouldn't even have a plan when you walk in. Um, nah, but nah. I, I I do, and I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this or, or so. But do you have any advice for Nick for past NICU dads? Um, do you think? I mean, we always say, you know, it doesn't, this doesn't stop after the NICU. Um, you know, no, it doesn't. things still Thank keep, keep going. You know, it, it's, it's a process and we all know. But um, for past NICU dads, do you have any advice for them or anything you would recommend for, for NICU dads that, you know, might be out five years, you know, four years or anything like that? Yeah. yeah. Well, look, I, I mentioned before I spoke to a lot of dads. Um, I did a lot of news 
um, conferences, a lot of new, I've seen a lot of newspapers, um, I was on the national broadcaster here um, on the radio um, speaking about the Nikki Dad, the book and the process and the fundraising that will be done. And um, I'd had a lot of dads that had contacted me through that. Um, one dad in particular sticks in my mind, which was um, a guy who was in his 50s, uh, was a farmer out in uh, regional uh, Victoria, um, heard me on the ABC, which is the regional radio, and um, he contacted me, uh, I think about sort of four or five times, and he said to me, he said, look, he goes, I had a child uh, in the NICU, um, you know, sort of 30 years ago. I said, okay. I said, do you want to have a chat about it? He goes, he said, uh, look, I would love to have a chat about it, but I just can't. But I really want to chat to you about it, but I just can't. Um, and I think there's a lot of guys like that, that it's kind of, to me, that's a, to me, that's a fellow who's um, bottled up the experiences and, and the, the emotions that have gone on for him, the things he's seen, the things he's experienced. And now he probably would have had a tougher goal of it too because, you know, 30 years ago, the NICUs were completely different. I mean, the survival rate was significantly lower. Um, his child survived. And um, the survival rate now is, you know, up in the 90s in, in the Western countries. So it's really amazing. We're very lucky um, that medical nurses advance. The only thing I would say to people who've been a NICU dad who haven't spoken about it, um, and it might help, just either get in touch with a... Um, one of the NICU groups um, that are around, um, you know, Hand to Hold is, is the one this is going through. There's some great resources there. Um, there's some amazing resources that I know of. Uh, I mean, March of Dimes has got some great stuff as well. Um, in Australia, there's two standout organisations, um, after mine, of course, uh, called um, <laughs> Miracle Babies. <laughs> Miracle Babies, if you Google Miracle Babies Australia, you'll get a brilliant website and they've got so much material. Um, they've even, probably the best thing they've got in there is they've got interviews with families. It's not so much dads, but it's families. And they've got them uh, uh, sorted by the week of prematurity of the child. So if you want to go and hear what a family who had a 23-weeker or a 27-weeker or a 32-weeker, what their experience was like, go on there and look down the list and just go and listen to what those families had to say if you want to connect that way because that is a really good um, connector. Um, and the other one is Last Little Treasures. Um, well, I do a little bit of informal ambassador work for, but not a lot. Um, but they have um, an amazing app. Um, they've got an app which is a Nikki Baby Journal, um, which is incredible. Um, but probably the most powerful thing they've got is they've got a NICU, um, uh, a NICU dictionary. So mm. if you download that and you're hearing words in the NICU and you don't know what the term is, um, you can get that app um, from Last Little Treasures. If you, again, if you Google Last Little Treasures um, Australia, you'll, you'll get to the website um, and find that. And that app just gives you all the terms. So that way, when you're talking to the doctors, their doctors are doing their rounds, they can tell you these things, just write the words down, don't try and spell them properly, just get the words right, <laughs> you get the sound of it, uh, and then you can look up later, you can do that stuff later, but just, you know, um, have that, you have that relationship. So, so for those dads, I would just say, um, they're probably not even realising, they might have a, a bit of a gut wrench knowing that there's still something there that they don't want to talk about or they avoid talking about it. I, I would just say, you know, either speak to a to dad's group or if you don't want to do that, 
just ring a psychologist. Um, yeah. You know, I think I, I've given I've given this example to people before. You know, when I say you know ring a psychologist, um, ring someone who who wants you to talk about it, who won't necessarily prescribe something for you for it. Um, you know, that's going to be a better outcome for you. So just have a conversation with someone and talk it out. And and a lot of people a lot of people say, oh, I don't need to. A lot of guys will say, I don't need to talk about it. I've got my mates, or you know, don't talk about. It. I say, but you know what? You could cut your own hair as well. But why would you? You get someone yeah, to do exactly. it. Someone who knows what they're doing. You know, you could build your own car. You could build your own house. You could build your own driveway if you want to. But why would you? Why don't you just get a professional to come in and help you with it? Um, that's the same way I look at it as well. When it comes to a psych, if it, if, it, if it's something that's still there, or, um, or you think there might be something that's you know that's affecting you, or um, just speak to a speak to a professional. It's just the best thing you can do. Not and and I and I say this as an advocate for families and not necessarily for dads because it'll make you a better unit in your family and it'll make your family better as a result of doing that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, well, especially with seeing all the numbers and that are coming out of dads suffering from post-traumatic stress order, disorder and, you know, the different cases of PTSD and how NICU dads now are the stresses that they're dealing seem to almost be even greater than NICU moms. And, um, and, you know, the numbers that you're talking about, the NICU dads in the States and Australia and just around the world uh, every year, uh, we're talking about a lot of guys, um, you know, and a lot of stories well, and, you know, that either get shared or don't get shared. And uh, I know for me, uh, every time I do tell my story or, you know, about our NICU stay, I feel a little better. And, um, you know, especially when you get in the dad's group, um, I, I don't think we can say enough about the dad's group and the sharing that goes on um, and how beneficial that is to NICU dads. But, yeah. um, That's so true. And, and talking about it is really powerful. And um, even, even if it's to the point of speaking to your friends about it because um, the default people fall into is not talking about it. Um, but if you talk to your friends about it and you can say to your friend, look, I just want to tell you this, I just need to unload this a bit. Can I just unload with you for a bit? Um, most friends will go, yeah, yeah, no worries, no worries. And, and, um, and so that you can just unload in that way and just sort of tell them. You're not sort of, you're not complaining, you're not doing anything, you're just getting it off your chest. And, and the, the power of that is that you've just created a soldier that's now going to work on behalf of Nikki Dad in his network. Yeah. You've got you've got someone who now understands or has a sense of the of the problems, and then if he comes across someone else or he's someone else who's had a premature child, hey, I've got a mate who's got who's done yep. that. Maybe I could see whether you guys can have a chat or have a conversation. I mean, yep. that's to me. If we could get that working, if that can just be the default for people to move into, where past Nikki dads then get to mentor new Nikki dads, that's sensational. I think I think your organisation does that anyway, which is I think just brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I actually had that happen to me this week. A friend of mine had a baby, um, a 26-week uh, uh, baby in the NICU, and uh, her sister and some friends have already reached out to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Once we get that ball rolling and people start seeing and understanding, and I, I think we're there. I think we're there. It's, uh, things are definitely going to start growing. And I think, well, I think just, on that, uh-huh. just, just, the, okay. just on that, um, uh, quite often going through the NICU, I think a lot of men 
and myself, I think I initially saw it this way too, just saw it as a negative experience or a blip on the radar um, mm. and not something to be shared or talked about. But I, I think what's really worked for me and I think from the other dads that I've spoken to, when you flip that around and say, you know what, being in the NICU has been a gift. It's been a gift because it's, it's actually, for me personally, it's actually made me meet these other dads and put myself out there and, and, and have conversations, meet yourself and have the opportunity to share these with other dads. And, and now that's a gift, now that I've worked through this, I feel like I've got a gift, I've got to share that. And, I, and it's selfish for me to keep that to myself, which is why I want other NICU dads to sort of step out and contact, even if you contact your NICU to say, look, I want to help other dads. Um, that's probably a really simple way to do it. Use what you've got because it's a gift. And there's so many men that have, that have experienced it that are not sharing that gift. And I really think, I really think that it's a one way of contributing. And you know, if you give to, if you give to charity, if you if you donate or if you um, contribute in any other way, you know, this is one way you can really make a difference. And you can it can be as personal as you like it to be. Um, but uh, this is one way to really make a difference and use the gift that you've been given in life. Well, Rad, I just want to thank you for your time and thank you for, really, thank you for everything that you do. Um, you know, enter the NICU, uh, the guide for the first 72 hours in the NICU, and the Beard Club, the NICU Beard Club. Um, I just really, you know, do we want to throw out the word pioneer? Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I think you're definitely doing some big things and, um, you know, I think it's only the beginning. Um, for all of us on this, I, I think Nikki dads, um, we're going to start seeing more and hearing more about it, but I just want to thank you for your time today. And, um, you know, I recommend any Nikki dad, friend of a Nikki dad, or you even think somebody might be a Nikki dad, go out and get enter the Nikki. Um, it's so essential. Get the guide, at least look for it online. Um, Google rad, um, he is Australian, by the way, if you haven't been able to tell. Uh, but definitely, you know, show some support. And um, it, I think you won't uh, – it, it, it'd be super beneficial. Well, thanks a lot, Rad. Thanks for having me on, Alex. I really appreciate it. And uh, if all men can use their gift, that's, that's all we really want them to do. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Once again, please take a look at the NICUdad.com. We continue to grow the list of resources we are bringing NICU dads. To my fellow NICU dads, good luck, and remember, you are not alone.